0: Hello everybody and welcome to the TeacherCast Educational Network. My name is Jeff Bradbury and thank you so much for joining us today and making TeacherCast your home for professional development. This is TeacherCast podcast episode number 196. Today we're talking to ASCD author Mike Anderson about a new book that he has coming out and I am so excited to have him on the show to talk to us about it. We of course want to say thank you to our friends over at ASCD for bringing him on the show and sharing his passions with us. If you guys are out there listening to this, we hope that you are enjoying all the great stuff that's happening over at TeacherCast. We've got so much stuff coming out. Of course, if you're a fan of Microsoft Education, we've got a great online course that we are starting to roll out all about how to do Microsoft Teams. And I hope you guys recently took a chance to listen to our brand new show all about the Microsoft Learning Consultants. If you guys are working in a Microsoft school, you guys have to check out this episode and learn how to bring Microsoft Learning Consultants into your school district today. And of course, if you guys are interested in podcasting and bringing podcasting into your classroom, check out our new website, podcasting with students today. Learn about all the curriculum that you can bring in. We have got app reviews. We've got uh, equipment recommendations, lots of great stuff. Check out podcasting with students today and learn how you guys can bring podcasts into your classroom. My guest today is an educator and the author of a brand new book called What We Say and How We Say It Matters, Teacher Talk That Improves Student Learning and Behavior. I am so interested in learning more about this topic, and I want to welcome Mr. Mike
1: Anderson on the show. Mike, how are you today? Welcome to the program. I am fantastic, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me on. This is totally fun.
0: It is so nice to have you here. I love the book. I love the title. And we were talking a little bit before the show starts. This is not just a great book for teachers. This is a book for anybody that's got kids at home. Talk to us a little bit about
1: who is Mike Anderson. Huh. Well, I am a lifetime educator. If you want to go way back, I first started teaching when I was about 15 years old. And mm. I started started teaching swimming lessons at the YMCA in Auburn, Maine. Um I went through college knowing I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. After college, I went right into the classroom and taught third, fourth, and fifth grades for 15 years in public schools and had a blast doing that. Um, I left the classroom about 10 years ago and joined a nonprofit organization. I was a responsive classroom presenter, and I worked full time with that organization for about six and a half years. And now for about the last four and a half years or so, I've been out on my own as an independent consultant. So I'm working with teachers in schools all over the place and having a blast.
0: And I bet you're working with teachers from all grade levels and subject areas. And I bet they all have the same thing in common, which is what is the best way to communicate with our students?
1: Yes, I do work with teachers from pre-K on up. And, uh, and one of the biggest topics that comes up, regardless of the the sort of macro content we're working on, whether it's social emotional learning across the school or classroom management and discipline or boosting engagement through choice and differentiation. One of the biggest topics that comes up across all grade levels is the language that we use with kids because it's so powerful and, and important. And even just small, subtle shifts in what we say and how we say it really make a huge difference in how kids, um, how kids feel about school, how they feel about learning, how they feel about themselves. So yeah, this is a, it's a big topic. You know, it's, it's one that
0: is really hitting home for me as I, as I've gone through the book a little bit here. Again, the book is called what we say and how we say it matters. It's available from ASCD publications. All of the links are going to be over in our show notes blog, Uh teacher cast podcast, episode number 196. Um, you know, it hits home for me as a, as a parent, right? Like we've got three kids, they're five years old. And the thing I love about your book is it gives a lot of great suggestions. You know, instead of saying this, try saying this way. And I've actually taken a few of those suggestions that, you know, those inappropriate, we call it dinner time. When everyone's going crazy, you know, don't say things like, Hey Robert, don't throw the food at your sister. We can say things like, wouldn't you rather have the food in your belly? (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. The food needs to stay on the plate. We talk to kids about what to do instead of emphasizing what not to do. That's a great simple example of a of a shift we could make.
0: Well, you, you mentioned earlier that you know language is important. So I got
1: to start with a conversation here with why. Why is it important the words that we say? Yeah, well, I mean, just about any interaction we have with kids involves language of some kind. Um, and the way we frame questions, the way we talk about upcoming learning or events can help shift kids' moods. Uh, Eric Jensen talks a lot about emotional states and the importance of helping kids get into the right emotional states where they're ready to learn. Um, The language we use has a huge role to play in that. Um, Here's just a simple example. I think that most teachers would say that they want to have classrooms that are child-centered. I I don't know of many teachers who say they're really going for a teacher-centered classroom where it's all about them. They wanted to be all about kids. But very often, one of the things that we do as teachers, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, um, is that when we're caught up in the moment, we tend to talk about learning or what we're doing from our own perspective. We tend to use the first person. So we'll say things like, I've been doing a lot of thinking about what we're working on, and I think here's what we're going to do next. And I'm really looking for kids who are going to do this. And I'm going to be asking you about such and such. And when we frame all of what we're talking about in a period or in a class about is sort of from our own perspective, in a sense, what we're saying is the classroom and the learning are all about us. And so if we can shift that and start speaking in the second person more, here's the next thing you'll be doing. One of the things you can pay attention to your work is um, you may look for these qualities. When we use the you voice instead of the I voice, we, we transmit the idea that the learning of the classroom is really more about the students than us. Um, So that's just one example of how a shift could could play a huge role in how kids feel. And I think this is especially important now because, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, schools looked very different. And the work that kids were doing was very different. It tended to be, uh, there was more solo work than there is now. Work is more collaborative than it was a generation or two ago we are no longer looking for simple compliance and obedience in school we're looking for true engagement we're looking for kids to do the right things for the right reasons but i think some i think we've still got some language habits that we've inherited from previous generations of teachers that may actually reflect an era that's past and so we use those language habits because those have been passed from teacher to teacher even though we want you know engagement instead of compliance. What Uh, would
0: be an example
1: of this? uh, So I think that when we talk about student motivation, I think most teachers would say that they want kids to be motivated about the work and to be motivated from within. Um, Sometimes what we'll do is talk about work in terms that actually makes it sound as though kids are just there to be compliant. So we might say, um, okay, so I know you all don't really like math but here's what we're gonna do next in math. And if you work really hard for the next 20 minutes, then we'll do something fun at the end. Mm. Well, what we've in a sense said is that math stinks. If what we've said is, you know, some of you don't like it. And if you work for the next 20 minutes, then we'll do something fun. Then whatever we're doing for the next 20 minutes clearly isn't fun. And so we've set this tone of disengagement and we're gonna do the work to get through it. Instead, we might say, hey everybody, we've got 20 minutes to see how much we can get done. Let's see if we can really focus and put some great energy into our work. So So is that the same thing? Is that the same
0: way of saying, you know, if if you eat your broccoli, then we can have the cookie?
1: (laughs) No, because that makes it really clear that the broccoli is yucky and that the broccoli (laughs) is only a a path to getting to the cookie. We often talk about uh, school like this with grades, especially in the upper grades. We tend to frame why kids should do things around grades. If you want to get an A, here are the three things you have to do. And in a sense, what we've said is the work, isn't, the work isn't worth doing on its own. Instead, the goal is to just do the work in order to get the A. That's another kind of holdover from a previous generation when we were looking for just good little worker bees to be compliant instead of people to be truly engaged in work.
0: The book here is What We Say and How We Say It Matter. I want to kind of go through some of the chapters here because everyone kind of pulls out different things. And, and really, when we're looking down the table of contents here, you're giving us, you know, 13 or 14 key things to look for. And, you know, some of these things are, are relatively obvious when you look at it through this lens. I mean, you, you know, one of your chapters here is called Show Respect for All Students. Why are we or why aren't we or why is that something that we need to be worrying
1: about aren't aren't we doing that already so you know my the the premise of the book as a whole is that we've all got good intentions we've all got the best of intentions with the kids we work with whether we're talking about our own children or we're talking about the children in our schools um maybe we're a soccer coach or a dance teacher and we're talking about the kids we coach or work with so we've all got the best of intentions um and We all have to rely on language habits. I don't think that we can pre-think everything we're gonna say all the time. We would be exhausted, there's too much going on. And so we have to kind of have our stock phrases, the stock way of of talking about things. And we all end up, I think, in habits that don't match our best intentions. So I think that we all want to be respectful of our children. I think we all wanna show respect for our kids but then we may accidentally fall into language habits that actually don't line up with that. Um, one, that I can, one that comes to mind right away is the idea of um, how we name our students and what we call them. Um, I think it's really easy to fall into nicknames for kids or into calling using terms of endearment to refer to kids. We might call them sweetie or honey. Um, I've heard of some teachers calling kids little chickies or little duckies. Uh, and, I, and I've even heard, this This sounds like it would just be a primary grade thing, but I've heard middle school and high school teachers refer to kids as sweetie and honey. Well, I don't think we do that with a with bad intention. And I think, in fact, we may do it to build rapport and connection with kids. But, but sometimes those things can actually make kids feel a little devalued. I talked to a middle school student once who was really furious with the fact that his seventh grade teacher called all of them sweetie and honey, and he kind of, as I was talking with him, he kind of almost spat it out. He's like, look, we're her students, not her grandchildren. <laughs> and it was really clear that he, he wasn't feeling emotional connection because he was being called sweetie. It actually was making him feel less than.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think that's, that's just one example. Another, another example, and it's not necessarily the way we would talk to kids, but it might be the way we talk about kids, There's a really important language habit called using a child-first language, which means that when we're talking about kids and we're describing them, we put the child before the descriptor. So if we have a student in our class who has Down syndrome, we don't refer to them as a Downs kid. We refer to them as a child with Down syndrome. Or if we're talking about children learning language, they're not our ELL kids, but they're our children learning English so that we're not defining kids by these sort of narrow little constructs but we're thinking about the child before the before the condition or before the descriptor
0: what changes do you see in students or in classrooms when teachers you know maybe go through the book and change their vocabulary a little bit to put the child first or to put the respect back into the class what kind of you know, what, what kind of outcomes have you seen and changes after everything here?
1: Yeah, well, I can speak to my own experience as a classroom teacher because I, I was constantly working on my, my own language. And one of the things I noticed is that my children often adopted my language habits. So when I worked at moving away from the phrase, I like the way you... When I was giving kids positive feedback about something, that was kind of my stock phrase for a long time. Oh, I really like the way we're walking down the hallway so quietly. Oh, I love the way you add a description at the beginning of your story. I like how you're sitting quietly ready for morning meeting. I use that habit all the time and it's a really common habit. When I moved away from that and when I let my students know why I was moving away from that and actually asked them to help me break that habit, one of the things I saw was that they started using better language as well in writing conferences. Hmm. So they started moving away from that language of, I really like the way you started your story, and they started to be more descriptive. So um, and I think this, this can go both in a good way and a bad way. I've also, in one school in which I taught, there were a couple of teachers who used really, really negative sarcastic language on a regular basis with children. And when I inherited those kids the next year, it would take months of hard work on my part to break those language habits of the kids. So I think we have to remember that we're always modeling whether we mean to or not, and the language habits that we use with them should be the same kind of language habits that we want them to grow into themselves.
0: Well, you had just mentioned things like sarcasm, and I know in the book you mentioned things like negative teacher talk. How do we break our students of that? I mean, you you know, September is coming, we're gonna get a new crop of kids. How do you take a group of students and, and point them in the right path? if that's even the right way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, it is. And I think that's one thing to think about. I think we should also think about how we break our own habits because boy, if we can't break our own habits, it's awfully hard to help other people break theirs. Um, What I did in my own classroom was I kind of hit some things head on. I I didn't, I was just really clear and said to my students, there are certain ways we're going to talk with each other this year in fourth grade. And one of the things we would do is create rules together as a class. So we went through a process. It would take about, three to five days, depending on the class and the year, where we collaboratively built rules together. And then those rules became the anchor of discipline in the classroom. So if we had a a classroom rule that said we were going to treat everyone with respect, then as I heard language habits emerging in kids that didn't match that, I could refer to our classroom rule and say, oh, you know what? When we use that really negative language with each other and make fun of each other for making mistakes in math, we're not following our rule around respect. So here's how we could say that instead. So I think it takes a lot of really proactive, patient, hard work on the part of teachers to help kids break some of those habits they might have. Um, And in the book, I've actually devoted an entire chapter to helping teachers think about how to shift our own language habits, because that is really, really hard and so important.
0: What would be a way that a teacher can, you know, motivate a student through their language that, you know, maybe that student isn't having a good day, or maybe that student is one of those people that's just trying to needle the teacher right there. Is there a way to help a student out without calling attention to them in a positive way?
1: Well, I always found that when I needed, when I saw an ongoing challenge with a kid, if it was something that was happening on a pretty regular basis, that was something where I'd find time to have a chat with that kid on the side. You know, I'd invite them to have lunch with me, or we'd go for a walk and talk on the playground or maybe during a reader's or writer's workshop, I would have a, a five minute social conference with that child instead of a writing conference um, so that I could try and figure out what was going on. Uh, Ross Green is a fantastic educator and he talks about how uh, behavior is a form of communication. And so when we, when we see kids exhibiting a behavior that's not positive or that is clearly troublesome, I think we need to pause and work at not reacting too quickly and um, and jumping to conclusions and trying to figure out from the kid's perspective what's going on and why that's happening. And then once we've figured out what's going on for that kid, then we can start to think about how we might help them get into a better pattern.
0: You know, we were talking earlier about the fact that, uh, you, you know, you, this this b- book here called What We Say and How We Say It Matters is great for teachers, but also for parents you know, even just now, I'm kind of flipping through the pages here. Not only from the teacher, but the parent. But you know, my my background is in conducting. My background is an orchestra, and and I just kind of stopped here at chapter five, which is set students up for success, right? And you get a lot of students that come in, especially to the performance classes or to the you know to the shop classes, the STEM. Class, They want to try things, but they're just not sure how to do it. And I know one of the things that you're, you know, that it's in the book, you know, you, you can't say, hey, look at Mike, he's doing this. You can always adjust that to say, hey, look, what can we do together? Or how does this work out better? There's always ways to help the kids out that might not be able to be as successful as the other students. Talk to us a little bit about why it's important not to be pointing at people and saying, let's be more like that student.
1: Yeah, that's a tricky one, because I think many of us were taught in, certainly teachers and teacher prep programs were often taught to highlight the good behavior or the good performance of one child and hold that up as the model to encourage other kids to want to do that. Um, But that can be troublesome. And even if we have a positive community in our classroom, there are times when we, we want to be really careful about that. Something that I like to say to teachers is, whenever you're struggling with a language habit or you're trying to figure out, is this okay to say or is it not okay to say? Imagine what the adult equivalent would feel like. So how would it be if a principal got up in front of the staff at a staff meeting and said, you know, I really want to commend Ms. Robertson for the way she's been showing up to bus duty on time. It's really great that she's organized and that she's taken care of her responsibility to the school. And what the, what the principal's really saying is to the three people who aren't showing up on time, you need to do better. Well, how's that going to work in the community? Poor Ms. Robertson's going to feel like she's been put up on the pedestal in front of everybody else. Um, A buddy of mine from Australia likes to say there's something called the tallest poppy syndrome, which is the tallest poppy in the field is the first one to be cut down. Mm -hmm. And so when we elevate one kid up above the others and say to others, here's what you should emulate, we sometimes set that kid up for social challenges. Um, It can make kids feel like they're in competition with each other and instead of in collaboration with each other. Um, So a management switch we might make is let's say that we're all, um, we're all, let's say it's the end of band time and everybody's supposed to be putting their instruments away and getting ready and about half of the kids are and about half the kids aren't. So instead of saying to everybody, hey everyone look at the way Susan is putting away her tuba, let's all remember that's what you're supposed to be doing. We might look around the room and say, hey everyone it looks like about half of you are remembering that it's time to clean up the band's instruments so let's make sure we all get on track and, and get going. So we can still use the the positive behavior or, or work of some to help others, but I think to do it in more general terms. And if we are gonna use a piece of student work as an exemplar, if we're gonna put it up as something kids might learn from, I think we should always ask that student first and then make sure to do it in a way that doesn't make it sound as though we're sort of telling all the other kids, hey, you should be like them. Uh, instead, here's something we should grow from or here's something we might share and learn about together. Um, just so we 're not setting kids up for tough social challenges, you
0: know, you know I think anybody that's listening to this show as as you're talking about these different topics are thinking about that that one moment where they heard it that way or that they their teachers before them had told them that way mm-hmm. uh, and, and looking at all these topics here you know i I'm also looking, putting my my tech coach hat on this going <laughs> a lot of these topics could be. Fit- can be very meaningful for technology coaches that are working with other adults, right? Like, you you don't want to say, hey, look at Mike's Google Doc. Hey, Sally, why doesn't your Google Doc look like that? I mean, th- this could easily be translated into, again, the faculty meeting where, you know, every single month the principal might go out and say, all right, here's my my blue ribbon teachers and I'm going to bring them up and give them a certificate. I mean, it just happens over and over and over again you're not saying it's bad to recognize people, right? You're just saying, let's think about the way we're doing this, not to single them out, am I, am I getting this right here?
1: Yeah, I think so, that we wanna be really careful about the social repercussions of, of what happens when we single people out. So I'll tell you that when I was a classroom teacher, I actually won this really amazing, cool award as a classroom teacher that had this huge cash prize. That did me no favors in the adult community in my school, I had a couple of colleagues who wouldn't even talk to me for a couple of weeks or make eye contact with me. And, and it wasn't an award I'd applied for, it it kind of came out of the blue, um, but it, it gave me a really firsthand experience with what happens when some people feel that some people are being recognized and others aren't. And Jeff, you bring up a great point, which is that the language habits in the book, I, most of the book is about the way adults talk with kids but actually the way I've structured the book is the first chapter kind of builds the case for why language is important. Chapters two through 12 focus on specific mismatches, common mismatches between our best intentions and the way we actually talk with kids. Chapter 13 is all about how adults talk together in schools. And a big part of that chapter is basically encouraging adults in leadership roles to think about the language habits in the rest of the book in in ways they might use those with adults. And then that final chapter is about shifting habits. So uh, yeah, you're right on that these language habits aren't just about how we talk with kids. They're about how we talk with each other too.
0: Talking today to Mike Anderson, author from the brand new ASCD book called What We Say and How We Say It Matters. Of course, all the links are gonna be in our show notes over here on TeacherCast podcast, episode number 196. Mike, I, 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 I love the book here. I encourage anybody to check it out. I'm guessing that you've got a follow-up coming here called maybe what we do and how we do it matters. Is there, is there, a, is there a follow-up here that we can be looking forward to? Cause you know, sticks and stones kind of do the kind of same thing, right? Like a lot of teachers say one thing and do a different thing, right? It's
1: what, what, what can we take away from all of this? Oh boy. That's a great question. Yeah. So I do have another book in mind, but it's not what we do and." In- How We Do It Matters. Although that would be a really interesting book also. It's getting the trademark ready. (laughs) I know, the the next book I'm thinking about actually pulls at one of the ideas in this book and expands on it. There's a chapter in here about boosting intrinsic motivation. And I found I had so much to say about intrinsic motivation that that might be what I play with next to Hmm. really think about what are the characteristics that make work worth doing on its own so that we're not having to bribe kids with grades or stickers. but I think your other question about our actions and how our actions should mirror our best intentions is right on. And it's and it's hard to pull apart our language from our behavior. Um, you know, one of the th- points I make really clearly in this book, and I've made it in other, other books as well, is that if we truly believe that kids are intrinsically motivated, if if we truly believe kids want to learn, which I really do believe, I think all kids want to learn and grow and get better at stuff. And some of them have barriers that are making it hard. And I get that. But deep down, every kid wants to get better. Well, if we think that kids are already motivated to get better at stuff, then, then we better not be manipulating them and bribing them with treats and goodies and prizes, because that actually transmits the reverse belief that we would only use those things if we thought kids weren't motivated and they needed to be motivated. Um, and besides, the research is uber clear that those kinds of motivators do more harm than good in the long run. Um, hmm. They might motivate in the moment, but they tend to decrease intrinsic motivation. Um, but, but your point is well taken that we, we need to pay attention not just to what we say and how we say it, but also to what we do and how we do it.
0: Mike, you got some good stuff going on here. I, I want to see if I can fire a couple of questions at um, about a couple processes here. We, we've been doing a lot of work with ASCD. And again, we want to say thank you for, for connecting Mike and I and, and having him be on the show. Um, wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the process here that you go through. Many people have said, look, I have a book. I wanna I want to get it out there. I want to bring my thoughts to paper. What advice do you have to any teacher out there that's, that either has a publication or looking to be published, um, whether it be
1: by ASCD or any other publication out there? And our, let me clarify, are you asking about a teacher who's already got a book written and they're looking at how to get it out there, or they've got an idea and they're thinking about writing a book and they want to think about how to do that? Let's do the second one first, but let's hit both of those. Okay. So I think that the first thing you've got to get over is the idea that you have to be a good writer, whatever that means, in order to write a book. Um, as soon as you start judging yourself as a writer, uh, you might as well just you put the computer down, close it up and go to the beach or something because nobody writes a good first draft. I, I, just, I just don't think that's possible. So part of what you have to do is get over yourself a little bit and just say, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is just start playing around. I'm gonna start playing with ideas, I'm gonna jot down ideas. I'm not gonna sit down and try and write a book, but I'm gonna start doing a lot of writing about something that I care about. And I'm gonna recognize that it's gonna take a long time and I'm gonna to have to sort of massage it. I'll say one thing that I do when I'm, when I'm getting really interested in something, and I think it might go in the direction of a book, is I put up chart paper on a wall and I just start splashing up all kinds of ideas onto the chart paper. And then as new ideas come, I add those to the chart paper and I find that once I get a bunch of ideas up, they sort of start to almost self-organize themselves. I see patterns, I see trends, and I start to pull those together. And those often become the first real seeds for writing, you know, where I might write a blog post or I might just write a little essay for myself. And then I think, you know, this could be a chapter. And so that's often the way a book, a book starts, is just by splashing a bunch of ideas up, um, nurturing it. And then spending a lot of time writing really crummy draft after really crummy draft. And then, um, and then once you've got a draft going, then you can start to make it good. And what was, the, what was the method for this? Was
0: this a bunch of blog posts that you pasted together? Was this one or two huh. blog posts
1: and then you just started to run with it? Yeah, no. In some ways, this book has taken me 20 or 25 years to write because wow. I've been fascinated with language for so long. And as a beginning teacher, I had some really important, powerful mentors who helped me start thinking about my language. Um, When I was a responsive classroom presenter, I loved to present about language that that organization um, talked about. I've written many, many blog posts about language. As I've consulted in schools, I've done lots of talks about language. So these ideas have been percolating. And that made me a little cocky. And so when I decided it was time to write this book, I really thought it was going to be an easy book to write because I'd been talking about it so much and I'd written so much about it already that I kind of thought, okay, this one's just going to write itself. And man, this one kicked my butt. It took me so long to get a workable draft because I had such a hard time organizing my thinking. And ideas just seemed to flow from one idea to the next. And it took a really long time to get the chapters kind of tight to the point where they each felt like their own entity. Um, so th- this one was a really really long hard slog and, and I'm really proud of the end result
0: I, I, I love the moral of the story there which is if you have an idea just keep working at it right it doesn't matter if it's a blog post a book a podcast uh, anything that's going on in your life just keep working at that little bit by little bit and, and you could have something as amazing as what we say and how we say it matter <laughs> available from ASC publications
1: <laughs> wouldn't that be something
0: Absolutely. Mike, I want to say thank you so much for spending time with us today. Please come on when, you, uh, when, when that next book comes out. We'd love to have you. And, and you know what, guys, if you're out there looking and this stuff re- uh, re- rings out to you, check out the book. Of course, it's av- available over at ASCB Publishing. This is TeacherCast Podcast Episode 196. All of our links to everything is there. But Mike, where can we find out more information about the book?
1: Where's your website and Twitter account that we can follow today? Sure. So you can get the book in a couple of places. I recommend going to the ASCD bookstore online and you'll be able to put in what we say and how we say it matter into the, into the search bar and that'll bring it up. It's available on Amazon. So that's another great place to check out. My personal website is www.leadinggreatlearning.com. And there you can see this book as well as other books that I've written and get in touch with me. Uh, my email is Mike at leading And on Twitter, I am at balanced teacher. So that's my handle on Twitter.
0: And of course, if you're in the new England area, check Mike out. He can take you out for a nice lobster or six or seven lobsters or anything like that. Right, Mike, you come
1: see me and I'll buy you a lobster.
0: Where do you go for your lobsters?
1: Newicks. It's a great little place right down yeah. on the water uh, in Portsmouth. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's a good spot.
0: The book, again, is called What We Say and How We Say It Matters. Check it out from ASCD Publishing. We, again, want to say thank you to ASCD for, for connecting Mike and I. It's an amazing book. Please, please uh, go on over and check it out. And, of course, we hope you check out all the other great stuff that's happening on TeacherCast. If you're bringing podcasting into your classroom, check out the brand new podcastingwithstudents.com today for all of your podcasting needs. And don't forget, if you're an instructional technology coach, we have our Tech Coach Mastermind. We have a brand new cohort starting at the beginning of April. Join us today. Go on over to uh, teachercast.net slash mastermind and learn how you can provide amazing professional development for yourself. If you're going to invest in anything this year, invest in your professional development and that wraps up this episode of the teacher cast podcast episode number 196 on behalf of everybody here in the teacher cast educational network my name is jeff bradbury reminding you to keep up the great work in your classroom and continue sharing your passions with your students